You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. We're going to step into chapter 4 of the Old Testament book of Daniel, and I'm going to try to go through the whole thing today. I was thinking of separating it into two messages, but now I'm going to squeeze it all in today for you guys so that we're not uh, going through this sermon series for seven years. Um, Anyways, what we're going to to find today is that as we go through chapter 4, it's a testimony of sorts by none other than the Babylonian king himself. So this is his words that he's writing. In the middle, it breaks it up into kind of a narrator explaining what has happened to him. And so the beginning and the end is King Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. Of uh, And so we're going to start with that. If you want to turn with me to um, Daniel 4, verses 1, we're going to start with the first three verses, so 1 to 3. If you want to turn with me there, if you have your Bibles, otherwise it'll be on the screen behind me. All right, so King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, that, that means King Nebuchadnezzar saying, this is me, I'm, I'm the one speaking here. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. All right, if you've been following us through Daniel, even a little bit so far, then this proclamation of how awesome and everlasting God is should sound a little bit strange to you, coming from him anyways, coming from King Nebuchadnezzar. Because what, what I mean is, who is this guy, right? That, that doesn't sound like the King Nebuchadnezzar that, that we all know and love to hate, right? That, this doesn't sound like the, the, the King Nebuchadnezzar whose armies besieged the city of Jerusalem who took God's people as exiles into his own country as tribute and then tried to assimilate them into Babylonian culture. This doesn't sound like the guy who violently conquered the empire of Assyria with his dad and and, and most of Mesopotamia. This doesn't sound like the guy who ordered the destruction of the temple of God in Jerusalem or the guy whose power corrupted him to the point of ordering all his wise men to be killed just because he was grumpy and woke up on the wrong side of the bed, right? This especially doesn't sound like the guy who in his pride built himself a ridiculously huge golden image and commanded everyone to bow down before it. And, and who threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace for refusing to do it. And so we have to ask, how did he go from being the guy who forced people of all nations and languages to bow down at the feet of his golden image to now proclaiming to these same people, to the same people, the majesties and glory of the most high God? What changed him or what changed in him to cause such a 180 in his life. Well, at the end of the chapter, he tells us with his last biblically recorded words, Daniel 4, 37, he says this, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol the King of heaven, 
For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And this is his story of walking in pride and being humbled. Um, Since we started the book of Daniel, we've seen that King Nebuchadnezzar has has since not only placed his confidence in the the wisdom of Daniel and his Jewish friends, but but has also seen more than a few incredible acts of God take place, right? Uh, Dreams, interpretations of those dreams, miraculous events that have been displayed through these Jewish men. He's even commented multiple times on, on how awesome their God surely must be. But still, none of that was enough for him to surrender his allegiance to God and acknowledge God's glory. I think a lot of the time we think, oh, if we see a miracle of God take place, then I'll trust in God. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar shows us that pride is the ability to, to resist that, right? So even through all that he'd seen and even been warned about in his dreams, he still remained, remained prideful in his lofty position as emperor of Babylon. And, and as a result, with his eyes set firmly on himself, he remained blinded to the truth that God is God and he is not. And part of the reason for this, part of the reason for this is that in, in those days, emperors and kings were actually perceived as, as agents of the gods, or even gods themselves. And yes, I'm saying gods, plural, because they believed in a plethora of gods. Each nation had their own gods that they worshipped and bowed down to and sacrificed people and animals to. Um, it's crazy stuff that they did. So this is also the reason that why whenever, whenever kings would conquer a country, they'd, then they'd take the, the idols and iconic vessels from, from the temples of those countries and either destroy them or bring them back to their own home and place them into the temples of their own gods. And the symbolism being here that, that not only must their gods be more powerful than the gods of the countries they'd conquered, but that the king must also be more powerful than those gods as well and God like himself or at least a, a direct image of the gods he serves, right? So, so, of course, being the king of one of the most powerful empires in the known world at the time, living in the thriving and beautiful city of Babylon with its booming economy, its high walls, its wide paved streets, its hanging gardens and carved idols, and, and, and being the conqueror of many nations, including the nation that Daniel came from, Judah, and therefore also conquering Daniel's God in his mind, right? This, this would have quite the effect on one's pride. It would be no stretch, Blair or otherwise, to imagine that, that he must have thought of himself as a God as well, right? And a powerful and important one at that. It's likely that in, in his mind he even commands or rules over the gods, Right? But he'll soon learn that it's the Most High God who rules over him. Because ultimately, God does want to reveal himself to King Nebuchadnezzar as the one who established and upholds him. But first, something had to be done about his ego. As C.S. Lewis writes, The essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. 
It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Therefore, it's no surprise that it says in James 4, verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So it's, it's pride that, that twists the minds and hearts of humans. It's pride that leads us to believe we've earned all we have on our own and that we can live without God. To that end, we'll find that Daniel 4 is the personal testimony of King Nebuchadnezzar's journey from pride to humility and amazingly how thankful he is for that journey at the end of it. And just like in chapter 2, it all starts with him having a dream. But this dream, uh, and again, this is a dream that none of his wise men can interpret, of course, except, of course, for Daniel. Um, but for the sake of time, I'm, I'm not going to read this part of the passage for us. I'm just going to give you the general overview, or we'll be here um, all, all day. Um, I'm just going to give you the general overview. overview. All right, so, so King Nebuchadnezzar is prospering in his palace, as he states, and then he has another dream. And this, I want to mention, this is probably 20 to 30 years since the last dream that he's had. So it's not like this is a recurring thing with him, like he's always having these dreams that need to be interpreted. Um, but, but this dream is also different than the first one as well. In this dream that he has, he dreams that there's this great big tree that reaches to the heavens and it's visible throughout the whole earth and it has abundant fruit and, and, and leaves and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air find shade under it and, and within its branches. And then, and then a watcher, a holy one from heaven, he says, so he's probably referring to an angel of God or, or something like that, uh, comes in and calls for this tree to be cut down and for the stump of the tree to be, to be preserved for seven periods of time. Um, and then it also calls for it to be given the mind of a beast and that its portion would be with the beasts who eat grass and have no shelter. So no surprise, he... Uh, this dream perplexed him. He's like, what's going on in this dream? And so after being let down once again in its interpretation by the wise men, he calls in Daniel, who's now the chief of the wise men at this point in his life, and he calls him in to come and interpret it because he believes that, he says, he, says he believes that Daniel's filled with the spirit of the gods. Uh, the truth, of course, is that Daniel has the spirit of God working in him, but Nebuchadnezzar doesn't understand that yet. Um, but upon hearing this dream... Himself, Daniel's dismayed by it as well. He, he doesn't actually want to tell the interpretation to King Nebuchadnezzar because of what it means. But Nebuchadnezzar urges him and says, you can tell me. Don't be afraid to tell me. So Daniel, out of respect, says to him, okay, I'll tell you the dream, but don't let it alarm you. And even better, let's hope it's about your enemies and not about you. But Daniel knew very well that the dream was about King Nebuchadnezzar. And this is the interpretation that he gives them. He says the tree represents King Nebuchadnezzar's rule and reign, his power and dominion that's been given to him. And then the tree being chopped down to its root was a great decree from the Most High, from God, due to King Nebuchadnezzar's pride, that he'll be driven from among men to dwell with the beasts of the field. He'll be made to eat grass like an ox and will have no shelter in the rain. It says all this will take place for seven periods of time 
which some believe to be seven years, which is probably right. Some argue that it's less time. But I, I think the overall point, though, is that the number seven in Scripture is often the number of completion in the Bible. And the point here is that he'll remain a beast until the time is right. Until, Daniel says to King Nebuchadnezzar in verse 25, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. So that's the lesson that he's going to learn here. The good news, Daniel says, is that the stump of the tree, which is going to be bound in bronze and iron, represents God's decision to keep King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom established for him until that seven periods of time is up. And so he's going to get his kingdom back. And in essence, this is a warning for King Nebuchadnezzar. In the same way that that Jonah's message of judgment given to the sinful city of Nineveh was really a warning for them. And, And when the people of Nineveh repented, what happened? God didn't cast his judgment on them like he said he would. No, he mercifully relented his judgment. He forgave them. So Daniel takes this opportunity to plead with King Nebuchadnezzar to heed this warning so that none of that will happen to him. When he says in verse 27, Daniel 4.27, it says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Listen to me. Listen to this. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. But of course, King Nebuchadnezzar in his stubbornness and pride doesn't heed that warning. And it says in verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. And I think in many ways that we can relate to Daniel's perspective at this point. I'm sure most of us have stories in which we've been real with a friend or a family member or, you know, or a brother or sister in Christ at church or something, you know, and, and pleaded with them, right? Quit going down that road you're going down. Quit hanging out with those people. Quit doing that thing that you're doing, right? Instead, use wisdom and, and relent. And, you know, and they reply with something like, well, it's not a big deal. I can handle it. Or who are you to judge me? Or I can do whatever I want. Or I don't need God. I'm in control of my own life. You know, we, we've heard all of that kind of stuff, right? And, and of course, the inevitable happens to these people. They, they, they ruin their lives. All that you warn them about and more happens to them. And in many ways, I feel like this is also the cry of the, the Christian church as us exiles to the world right now. But the world and its pride wants to be in control of what's good or evil. They want utopia without God, so they're not listening to us exiles. And this is King Nebuchadnezzar's reaction to Daniel and, and to this dream. He ignores the warning. He trusts and glorifies himself and and his own ways. He continues in his pride and in his oppression of everyone lower than him. And the inevitable happens. His pride leads to his fall. So we're going to read about that. Daniel 4, 29 to 33. Daniel 4, 29 to 33. It says, At the end of 12 months... He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, who's who's he answering? Answering himself? I don't know what's going on. 
And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. He's like a crazy man running through the forest. Running through the wilderness. But let's go back to the first verse. It says 12 months had passed after, he, after he'd had that dream. Twelve months had passed. This means he'd been given a whole year to heed the warning of the dream and repent. Instead, it seems like he'd mistaken that length of time to mean that, that, that he was in the clear, that nothing would happen to him, right? Maybe he thought God's absent meant that, that he was off the hook or something. And this is certainly a lesson for all of us. At this point, right? That quite often when it feels like God's taking too long to answer us or when he seems to be absent in our lives for a period of time, this doesn't mean that he's abandoned us or, or, or that he's forgotten about us. And it certainly doesn't mean that we're off the hook and free to live however we want. Most likely, he's being patient with us, giving us time to test our faith or to prepare our hearts for what's coming or to turn back to him in repentance. As it says in 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And we see that here. The Lord was being patient with him, with King Nebuchadnezzar. But it seems like instead of relenting, his pride actually grew. And then at the zenith of his pride, God's promised judgment came upon him. And I, I don't know about you guys, but when I read this part, I actually find it a little bit hilarious. You know, here's, here's, here's King Nebuchadnezzar. He's looking out on Babylon and he's boasting about how awesome he is and how all that he has is a reflection of his own glory and majesty. And then it says, it says while the words were still in his mouth, right, a voice from heaven came down and said, nope, that's enough. You're done, right? He's like, hey, everyone, look how good I look. And no, now you're a beast, right? Now you'll be a physical representation of what's in your heart. Now you'll be what all men become spiritually apart from the sustaining grace of God. Paul House writes, Nebuchadnezzar has become a twisted version of himself. And God does not expect animals to act with mercy, kindness, and humility. But he expects this of human beings, especially those in authority. So in other words, King Nebuchadnezzar really became physically what he had already become spiritually in his pride, a beast. He's not the image of God anymore. He's become a beast. And, and this theme about corrupt kings and rulers and people that are anti-God, anti or you see anti-Christ maybe, 
um, that theme of them being beasts continues throughout Daniel and is a big part of the book of Revelation as well, that, that, that um, symbolism. Um, but the reality is that apart from God, we lose our true humanity. And while it's easy to point the finger at King Nebuchadnezzar, we have to understand that this is our story too. This is our, our plight too. And it draws us all the way back to the garden in Genesis, right? When God created Adam and Eve, he created them in his image to dwell with authority over the garden, over the beasts of the air and the field, but also to dwell in relationship with God. This is how, this is how humanity is meant to be. This is how we were created to be. But when they chose in their sin and pride to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they chose themselves over God. And so they distorted that image and that relationship, and then they were cast out of the garden to live in the wilderness. And we see kind of that theme, like we see that show up throughout Scripture. That same thing happening. And in a sense, King Nebuchadnezzar, who, who God set up to have authority and was being sustained by God, is now having this Adam and Eve-like experience. Because of his pride, he's, he's being cast out of his garden, out of his kingdom, until he's humbled enough to realize who really sustains him and who really upholds him, until he learns what it truly means to be human. And yet, just being alone in the wild is enough to humble someone. Uh, my wife and I are currently watching a show called Alone. It's on the History Channel. I don't know if you've, any of you have seen that. It's like Survivor, but real life. Um, and where these skilled men and women try to survive by themselves in the wilderness, whoever survives the longest wins. Um, but it's amazing how many of them like, not only get lonely and a little loopy being by themselves, just less than two weeks in. They get so lonely and, and just really loopy. Um, but also how many of them are humbled and defeated by the experience, even though they're skilled, they're professionals at this. It just humbles them. And they're defeated by it. And so this is definitely a humbling experience for King Nebuchadnezzar, especially also because it seems like his physiology and biology has been changed so that he's even more like a beast. He's, he's, he's able to eat grass like an ox. So it's through this process then where, where King Nebuchadnezzar's certainly humbled. This is humiliating for him. But he also finds out in the end that God's discipline here is really a way to see and experience God's mercy and grace. So let's, let's read his response to this experience. Daniel 4, 34 to 37. It says, at the end of the days, after that seven-year period, seven year period or whatever it was, was over, at the end of the days, he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation 
All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. You know, again, what I find amazing about this is how thankful King Nebuchadnezzar is for his time spent in humiliation as a beast. Right? You'd think he'd be angry about that. You'd think he'd be mad about what God did to him. But his response is thankfulness. His response is to glorify God. It seems like he's realized, now that he's seen God, he's realized that unless God took drastic measures in his life, he never would have looked up and seen the truth. And in the end, that's where his his salvation came from, right? It was during that state of humiliation where he could do nothing but look to God. And as soon as he did, God saved him and restored him. And with his eyes on God, he could no longer praise himself. If we have our eyes on God, there's no possible way that we can praise ourselves. And so with his eyes on God, he could no longer praise himself. Instead, he could do nothing but humbly praise the Lord as the everlasting king. He could do, he could do nothing but acknowledge that it had been God that had sustained him and upheld him his whole life. He humbly declares that nothing and no one can control, rightly question, or thwart the purposes of God, which is what he thought he could do beforehand, right? He then proceeds to acknowledge God's generosity and mercy by honoring him and giving him all the credit for restoring his kingdom and authority back to him, and in an even greater way than before. As it says, God blesses the humble, right? All this now knowing that he's been placed there by God. And for God. And above all, he learned that God is able to humble the proud. That this is a just act of mercy and love. Because if God didn't ever bring us to a place of humility, we'd never be able to see and taste his goodness and mercy. This is the lesson for us all. Sometimes God needs to break our pride so that he can lift us up in our humility. God exalts the humble. So he needs to make us humble so we can do that. Uh, Paul House again writes, Pride flows from the worst mistake of all, which is putting oneself in God's place. Kings are not the only ones to commit this error. It is a common human failing. So it is no wonder that God warns Nebuchadnezzar and every reader about the need to know who rules the world and assigns duties in every walk in life. It is no wonder Jesus said, Blessed are the meek. And if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. As we learned a couple of weeks ago when, when I preached about humility, if we're to walk in the, in the blessing and will of God, it starts with having that posture of repentance, that posture of humility. So that he can work in us, so that he can exalt us and, and lift us up and lead us and guide us. And on that note, there's so much we can glean from King Nebuchadnezzar's 
personal testimony here, but, but I, I want to just draw our attention really quickly to, to, to a couple more particular lessons before I close this morning. Just some things to remind us of, hopefully we can learn from. And number one, again, I already mentioned this earlier, but again, God is patient. God is patient. As I mentioned earlier, God is not slow to keep his promises, but is patient with everyone, with us, with you. So we can be thankful for that. You know, right? just as he was patient with King Nebuchadnezzar, giving him more than enough time to repent, God is also patient with us to come to him and, and to grow in him. In all, it's actually estimated that it took close to 30 to 40 years, 30 to 40 years for King Nebuchadnezzar to come to this place of salvation. You know, seeing all the miracles of God and, and having these dreams and, and seeing uh, God re- the miracles reflected in, in Daniel and his friends, right? All those things, and then finally having this dream and this time of humility, 30 to 40 years before he actually came to salvation. So God is patient. And yes, like him, if, if we're yet unwilling to listen and repent, right? if we harden our hearts and we hear God's voice when we hear his gospel, then God's patience will definitely inevitably turn to discipline. So we should probably turn to God by responding to the good news of the gospel sooner than later um, if we hear his call rather than presuming upon his grace for too long, right? But on the other side of the coin, this means that we should also be patient with our witnessing to others as well. I'm, I'm sure Daniel had been praying for King Nebuchadnezzar since he'd arrived at Babylon. And it's probably safe to assume that, that many of you are also praying for certain people in your lives. People that you'd love to see come to faith in Christ as well. That they would know Jesus or, or maybe they've left the church and you're praying for them to turn back to God. And yet it seems like it's never going to happen. It seems like it's impossible. Well, it seemed impossible with King Nebuchadnezzar. And so to that I say trust in God's timing. Keep sowing those seeds. Keep being an example of Christ to them. Because when the time is right, when that, when that seven periods of time is up for that person, so to speak, God's will will be done in their lives. Don't give up on God's patience for their salvation. Rather, hope in it. Trust in it. The second lesson I'd like for us to learn this morning and, and really understand and accept, this is hard to accept, we have to accept this because it's good for us, is that God disciplines those he loves. If he didn't love us, he wouldn't discipline us. God disciplines those he loves. Hebrews 12 says this, My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them, but he does it for our benefit so that we can share his holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time. We can all agree with that, right? I'm sure King Nebuchadnezzar did not enjoy being a beast. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. 
God disciplines those he loves in order to draw them closer to him, in order to make them holy as he is holy, in order to humble them, in order to train them in righteousness, in order to bring us to a place and posture where we can see him and know him and live in him. And for some of us, bringing us to a place where we have no choice but to do that. And this is what it means to be blessed. To be blessed is to be in the presence of God. I don't know how you interpret blessing when you read it in the Bible, but that's what it means, is is to be with God, to be in the presence of God, to know God. And therefore, God will do whatever it takes to bless us. He'll do whatever it takes in our lives in order to remove our egos or our self-righteousness or our shame for sin or our envy or whatever's keeping us from seeing him and knowing him. Whatever's keeping us from that blessing. In other words, his discipline isn't punishment, but is a sign of his love for us. It's a means of of grace to bring us to a place in which he can restore us and rescue us from ourselves. And if he can humble King Nebuchadnezzar with his discipline, then there's hope for all of us in this. Um, About this theologian, Ian Duguid writes, As long as we are comfortable and at ease in this world, we are not normally ready to examine our hearts and institute deep changes. See, I'm just going to stop there. A lot of us think that we don't struggle with pride. That's a sign that we struggle with pride, right? And in our comfortness and ease, we, we don't really examine ourselves. We're like, ah, oh, we're all good. We're like King Nebuchadnezzar, right? We're like, oh, it's all good. And so we need to be disciplined. So that's what he's saying. As long as we are comfortable and at ease in this world, we are not normally ready to examine our hearts and institute deep changes. On the other hand, when God disturbs the calm waters of our lives, we begin to be ready to seek different paths to pursue. It is often when our career hopes are dashed or our marriage relationship is in shreds or the doctor announces that we have only a few more months to live that we are finally persuaded to become serious about spiritual things. If that is true, however, it suggests that we should approach these troubled times of our lives with a far more positive outlook than we normally do. These troubling experiences should prompt within us the expectation and hope that God is going to do something important in our lives. It is precisely through the storms of life that God will show us who we really are and even more importantly, who he really is. So these times of discipline are are, are good for us. We should see them that way. But that brings us to the third point, which is that Jesus was ultimately disciplined for us, right? Jesus conquered our pride in his humility. Of course, the story of of King Nebuchadnezzar's lesson of of being this tree, reaching to the heavens and then being reduced to a stump, of his being humbled in his pride should ultimately draw us and point us to the one true king, the son of man, the tree of life, Jesus the Christ, who humbled himself for us. The true king who actually deserved all the glory and all the honor and all the praise, but instead willingly humbled himself by coming into creation, 
took on the humiliation of his body being broken, his naked body being broken, and hung on a cross. And ultimately, he humbled himself even to the point of death upon that cross for our sin and for our pride. Ian Dugat again writes, What greater humbling experience could there possibly be than for the living God to die? Yet this king's humbling was not forced upon him because of his pride. On the contrary, contrary, it was a voluntary choice on his part so that he might redeem us from our pride. The one who by rights could legitimately have exalted himself, made himself lower than the angels in order to redeem a people for himself. This vision of the crucified and exalted Jesus is itself the cure for our overweening pride. How can we exalt ourselves and continue to sing our own praises when our eyes are fixed on Jesus? So let's take our eyes off of ourselves. Off of our accomplishments. Off of our comforts. Off of our wealth. Or off of our envy for somebody else's. Let's stop comparing ourselves to others. And let's fix our eyes on Jesus. The real tree of life. Whose abundance is all we need. And whose glory will be seen throughout all the nations. Who is the king in whom every person and every knee from every nation will bow. Who has saved us by his grace alone. And invites us into a kingdom everlasting. And as the word says, this is not our own doing so that no one can boast, right? But it's all because of the grace of God, because of his mercy and his love for us. So let's boast in him. Like King Nebuchadnezzar, let's praise God for what he's done, for conquering our pride and bringing us to a place of humility so that we can see him and know him and live in him. And to that end, we're going to respond to this, that word this morning by receiving communion. The cracker represents Christ's body broken for us. His humiliation, his body broken for us. And the juice which represents his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins and invites us into a new covenant with him. So we're going to respond by receiving that this morning. And you can receive it on your own or with your family or friends this morning. But before we come up and, and grab the elements, I just want to read Philippians 2, 5 to 11. Let's reflect on this. Let's reflect on what Jesus has done for us and, and the mind of humility that he's given us because of that. Philippians 2, 5 to 11 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'm going to pray and then I'll invite you to come and receive 
the, the elements of communion. Lord God, as we reflect on, on your word and, and, and what King Nebuchadnezzar had to go through, what you had to bring him through in order to humble him so that he could see you, Lord. And then we reflect on what Jesus did for us at the cross, that, that, that he did that for us. Lord, I can't, I can't help but think in, in, in the words of, of David, who am I? Who are we that you should be mindful of us, that you should rescue us, that you should save us? From our pride, from our egos, from our envy, from our self-righteousness. I thank you that you conquered all of those things at the cross. Lord, I thank you for rescuing us so that we can see you and, and know you and, and, and be loved by you and, and, and live in that love. I pray those here this morning that, that, that are struggling in that pride, Lord, that they would heed this warning, that they would listen to this message and, and, and repent that you would bring them to a place of humility so that they can see you and know how glorious and how amazing you are and how good your grace is. Ultimately, Jesus, I thank you for the cross. I thank you that your body was broken in our place, that your blood was shed for us. I thank you for that good news that we are forgiven by your grace your grace alone, and we glorify you and we boast in you alone for that. We give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.